I'm Leanne Spencer, founder of Body Shop Performance Limited, author, TEDx speaker, and your host. This is the Remove the Guesswork podcast, the show where I interview influential people in the health and fitness industry to bring you the latest ideas on how to optimize your mind, body, and well-being. Welcome to the latest episode of the Remove the Guesswork podcast. I'm your host, Leanne Spencer, and this week... We go back through gut health again. Now, we've talked about this a few times on the podcast, and I'm a really big believer in the importance of gut health as the root of most things that go wrong with us, actually. And I've had a couple of gut tests now. Those of you who listened to my original podcast a few months ago with Dr. Christine Roche will know that I learned a lot from my gut test. I realized I had candida. I had an overprevalence of a particular type of bacteria called Citrobacter freundi. I had a low level of a very important bacteria called lactobacillus. So I went through a treatment plan, fixed some of those things and retested. And this time I asked colleagues of ours and friends, Dr. Tamsa Lewis and her colleague, Dr. Victoria Fenton and Dr. Alberto Petusa, who's a consultant psychiatrist, to go back through my results. And we really look at what they mean, where I've got deficiencies, where I've got some red flags. We draw up an action plan, which we touch on in the podcast, and I'm going to go off and follow that now for the next few months and see where that gets me. We recorded this in Dr. Alberto Petusa's Harley Street offices. We also shot this as a video, so we'll put links to that. You can watch that on our YouTube channel if you'd rather watch it as well as listen to it. Uh, It was a really interesting podcast to record, actually. We do touch on the links between physical health, particularly gut, but also mental health. It was just a really interesting kind of roundtable discussion, really. Uh, Myself and three very well-qualified and experienced doctors. And I hope at the end of this, you come to a similar sort of conclusions that I did, which is that gut health is absolutely paramount. And we can actually prevent lots of things like autoimmune conditions, mental health conditions, as well as physical health. So really quite unpleasant stuff as well. IBS, IBD, Crohn's, ulcerative colitis, depression, even autism, stuff we really want to try and prevent and mitigate our risk of. So enjoy the episode. And we put links to everything that we talk about in the show notes. We also let you know how you can get hold of the three wise doctors that I recorded with today. And I think you're going to get a lot out of this. So sit back and enjoy. This is myself, Dr. Tamsin Lewis, Dr. Victoria Fenton and Dr. Alberto Petusa. Enjoy the show. Well, here we are, sat in some very nice rooms in Harley Street. Thanks to you, Alberto. Uh, we're here to talk about my gut test. So I've had a, a second test done in the, in the last few months. And I'm here with Dr. Tam, who's going to go through the results with me, but also two of her colleagues. So maybe if you guys introduce yourselves. Yeah, I'm Victoria. I'm working with Dr. Tam. I'm also a functional medicine practitioner and work a lot in gut health, so we're working closely together. And I also know Alberto Evolve, so... Cool. So my name is Alberto, or Dr. Alberto Petusa, and I work as a private consultant psychiatrist here at Harley Street, but I have a long-standing interest in functional medicine and everything gut-related. Okay, brilliant. Well, I'm sure we can come back into what that interest stems from. And it's also an integrative, integrative consultant psychiatrist, so taking yeah. into account lots of different factors in, in the presentation of mental health, the underlying factors, as opposed to just trying to diagnose and treat symptomatically. Mm. Brilliant. Well, I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit more. But Okay, 
So we're here to talk about my results. This came about because I did a test about four months ago and it flagged a few things. An overprevalence of Citrobacter, I may not be pronouncing this correctly, Frondi, I think. An underprevalence or not enough of Lactobacillus, but I also had Candida, for which I was asymptomatic. So I was wandering around with a Candida infection and had no idea about it. Mm. So I've done another test, the results of which we're sat in front of now. I skim read them mainly, as I was saying to Victoria earlier, to find out whether the candida was still there, because I wanted to get back on some occasional intermittent sugar. <laughs> In the form of? Pano chocolat, uh, <laughs> dark chocolate, yeah. the odd pudding. No wine? No, you're not a No wine no, in okay. total. I've stripped down all my vices to just sugar. So I skimmed through the results and I saw that Candida wasn't present, mm-hmm. but I didn't really look through much else. So let's go through them. Yeah, sure. I guess we should sort of give some context to all of this. I mean, obviously you've talked a lot about gut health in your podcast before and you've had various people on talking about it and the importance of it. And when we spoke, I told you that as part of our functional medicine assessment, we often look at the gut and we use something called the GI map, which is an advanced form of testing the gut, which looks at the DNA of various pathogens, so different Mm -hmm. bugs in the gut as well as gut health markers. So you've had the most elaborate gut test done. These things get sent back to the States where the technology seems to be in consumer healthcare a bit more advanced than we are in the UK. So that's the context. So you said you came originally had the gut test. Were you symptomatic at that point? You mentioned the candida. You said you weren't symptomatic with candida. Mm. We should probably touch on what is symptomatic of candida because some people don't know if they are or they aren't. They just exist in that way. Yeah. So for you, what was the sort of driving factor for wanting to have a gut test and to explore your gut health in the first instance? Well, from a personal perspective, has the candida gone? I take goat milk kefir every day, some of that on the table at the moment, and a few supplements. I was interested in knowing what my overall gut health was. From a professional standpoint, I'm very interested in the connections between the gut and mental health, the gut and people's overall health, you know, how they sleep, their mental health, their energy levels, and so on. I completely buy into that integrative or functional medicine idea that you start with the gut as as potentially the root cause of a lot of things Mm -hmm. like autoimmune conditions and mental health conditions and so on. So it's in part personal interest. It's in part I want to go through this process because from a business perspective, you know, we're going to put some clients, all our clients now through this process. So anyone that comes into the business, whether they're being coached or whether they bought one of our products, a gut test is included. Mm. We've been talking for quite a while. You, know, you and I did a podcast a few months ago. I've done some others on gut health and talking about the importance of gut health and that not having it included in our packages. So from a business standpoint, we everything is going to start with a gut test. Yeah. And I guess from that perspective, it's, it's looking at the type of gut tests available because often when people come to us and they say, look, we want, to do, we want to test the gut and there's a lot of, there's a range of products on the market now offered by either practitioners or direct to consumer like Atlas Biomed, they look at the gut. So I think there's a sort of, a lot of information out there and people don't really know what to choose and some practitioners use a culture-based test like Doctor's Data or Genova which we call Comprehensive Digestive Stool Analysis or some people use the GI map which is looking again I mean do you want to say a quick word about the GI map? Yeah I mean it's looking it's looking at the DNA rather than culturing so when you culture a stool test you're trying to grow what bacteria you can and it can leave flaws in the data that you arrive at really because you can only grow things that you can grow in a lab setting whereas when you're assessing 
assessing the DNA of what's in your stool, you get a lot more of a picture, but you also get a quantitative analysis, which is much more dependable. Mm -hmm. So rather than just trying to grow things on a Petri dish, you can actually quantify the level of these certain bacterias. And as we are starting to discover more and more about gut health, it really is balance and it's about how things are mapped against one another right. and in order to assess a balance you really need to have that quantification metric built within the stool test and this is the only one in the functional medicine world at the moment that actually offers us this quantification and lots and lots of markers so right. we keep getting more and more markers and the well researched things that we know what they do and everything should be in the gut but it's about how high is it, how low is it, and how is it balanced about everything else that's in there. So, so I, think, I guess if you get asked that question by clients, because I know that we do, you know, why do you choose this test and why should I not do Atlas Biomed because you, so you can buy direct to consumer and it costs X amount. What I like about this is, as you said, it's hugely detailed, so not do you only get the microbium, you also get gut health markers, you also get what can treat the bugs that are in the gut that aren't meant to be there. So mm. it tells you what they're sensitive to. You get a lot of different information, but it does need a skilled practitioner to oversee it because if we just give you this, it's like, well, come no, on, all I mean, numbers, not, right? Yeah, not a medical background, but something very vested interest and some experience, and it doesn't mean a great deal to me. No. So for your average person, and you know, the people who are listening to this podcast and will be doing these tests are busy professionals. Sure. They don't care what that says. It's what do I do with it? What do I add in? What do I take out? And how can I as easily as possible integrate that advice into my lifestyle? So coming back to you, we'll split the talk here because, you know, originally you had candida, I think you had geotrochium. I wish I had your report here. I, would, I could probably get it up on my phone just for for reference point. But now, I mean, that's gone. I mean, as, as you said, there's great news. I mean, I've seen that time and time again. You go on a sort of reduced sugar. I mean, did you do a course of antifungals as well? No. Any natural antifungals? No. Nothing at all? No. no oregano? No, nothing? No. Okay, so it was purely diet and yeah. then... Oh, that's interesting. Okay. I did. I took lactobacillus, but that's not really addressing that. It was addressing the lactobacillus issue. But I did that. I don't know how much that would support mm. the eradication of the candida. And I just went off sugar. I probably had four sweet things in a month. Mm. So that's pretty impressive. Pretty much. I mean, the sugar's just one pillar. Again, you know, if you've got a better ecosystem in the gut in general, so if you've improved lactobacillus, which we know is one of the beneficial bacteria, then that improving that good army might have actually helped you suppress candidal growth. Also, you mentioned you changed your diet, you added in goat kefir, which mm. again is, as you know, has beneficial bacteria. And that, that awareness for people often helps reduce candida overgrowth. Mm. So to talk a bit about candida, because it is hugely common, you know, the, what are the common symptoms of candidal overgrowth and what is candida? It's yeast. We hear a lot about it. Loads of people went on this anti-candida diet and they think it's amazing. And then conventional medicine will come in and go, God, it's rubbish. I mean, it just doesn't mean anything. It's so restrictive. The principles of it are good, right? You know, anyway, we should be limiting our refined sugar intake. Should we be able to cope with some? Yes. Again, it's a, it's a threshold effect. Mm. So I'll let Victoria talk a bit, little bit about candida. And... So candida is interesting in that it can be totally asymptomatic like you, but I think that's probably because you've got quite a health head on where you're aware of what you're doing and your behaviours and your choices. I think one of the most common symptoms I hear about with candida is sugar cravings and people not being oh, able well. to regulate their sugar consumption. I yeah. wouldn't, wouldn't You wouldn't have associated it yeah. with a gut condition. And that's one of the interesting things and how it ties to sort of psychology and, and mindset as well because these gut bugs can to a certain extent drive behavior because they need their food and their intake and they will actually be able to ask you to do that it sounds 
nonsense, but actually it can drive your cravings and it can change the way you want to select your food, which can then send you down a less healthy pathway. Mm. So that's the most common symptom with candida. Mm. You can also have other forms of thrush systemically throughout your body. So it doesn't just stay within the gut. Everything can travel. And that can be oral thrush or genital thrush. Mm. It can go everywhere. So... So candida is thrush. I mean, if you complain of thrush symptoms, either vaginally or in the mouth, I mean, a lot of people get thrush after being on a course of antibiotics mm-hmm. because it obviously depletes your good flora and then opportunistic bugs, including yeast, can overgrow. So having improved gut resilience, having a better good army in the gut can reduce your likelihood of that happen, even if you do need a course of antibiotics for an infection, mm-hmm. for example. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, that's candida. I mean, and the way we treat it is twofold. Again, there's the diet pillar, and then there's often we use natural antimicrobials, or in fact, frequently. And if there's a resistant candidal overgrowth, for example, if you did the diet changes, if you did the natural antimicrobials for a period of six to eight weeks, for example, we retested and it was still there and you were still symptomatic, then we do use prescription medications, mm-hmm. including fluconazole and nystatin, which do right. knock yeast on the head because sometimes the yeast overgrowth can be so extensive that actually to try and treat it naturally it takes a lot longer and it's helpful to sort of drop a medical bomb on it just to clear it, clear mm. things and give your immune system a chance to build back up because mm. if it's constantly having to fight off the bad stuff, it becomes depleted. Are there side effects of taking medicines? The, the antifungals are tolerated very well. Very it's few good. side effects to that. Unlike an antibiotic, an antifungal is as it says, it's designed to specifically treat fungus. And And people go on antifungals for toenail infections for six months and the only thing you have to do is occasionally monitor liver function once because it can raise the liver enzymes Mm. because Mm. of the processing through the liver. Okay. So look at, I mean, what's there now compared to what was there. Yeah, sure. So from your memory, and I will get this up on my phone, which I've put down here, just so that we know exactly what was in your first one. I apologise, I didn't have that up. If we see what's there now, we sort of start at the start and you look at the bacterial pathogens. So pathogens are disease-causing organisms. And the DR map spits into bacteria, parasites, viruses, and then further down into the subtypes of H. pylori, a bacteria that's renowned for its propensity to cause stomach ulcers. So for you, I guess the front page is the kind of really nasty stuff. This is if you're very symptomatic in your gut. You know, this is the kind of thing you'd go to your doctor and perhaps you've had food poisoning, perhaps you've got diarrhoea, perhaps vomiting, and these would come up red if that was the case. Mm -hmm. Which they haven't in in my... No, so things like norovirus, for example, is well known as gastric flu, Mm -hmm. C. diff, campylobacter... E. coli, salmonella, all types of food poisoning. But we still see those positive in people that aren't hugely symptomatic and they've just been grumbling away in the gut for a long time. Mm -hmm. So all of that is negative on you, including the H. pylori, which, as I said, is very commonly raised in people. And as I said, it can be a cause of digestive discomfort, reflux, esophageal ulceration and a lot of people don't know about it until they have you know prolonged indigestion which might have been treated at the doctors with an antacid for a long time and actually unless you kill the bug then yeah you you're not treating the root but this is well known in conventional medicine for causing ulcers and you use something called triple therapy to kill it off which is two antibiotics and a acid inhibitor ironically because having this over time the acid environment means the bug can grow more so you temporarily block it off for 10 days with two antibiotics and you get rid of it 
and people then improve and then would their reliance on medications long term goes down to reduce acidity for example yeah commonly for people with reflux and indigestion so then it go we talk about your normal bacterial flora so you've got a range of things here, lactobacillus, humane, dubs one. Levels are actually quite good now. In fact, they're more than good. They're right at the top end of the range. So um, that was, what was the supplement that you recommended to me then? It was a heavy dose of I don't know how many pills a day it was for a week. You had Elixir, yeah, yeah. yeah, which is like billions of lactobacillus and a few yeah. other strains. You know, I think that's what a lot of people don't realise is that taking an off-the-shelf probiotic, for example... You know that you can buy in Holland and Barrett that half of it might be dead because mm. it's a warm environment to you know they're often in millions these strains and what we know is that you need to have a high quality one it needs to be stable and it needs to be in the billions in order to get into the gut and stick mm. so you might have seen in the press for example that a lot of people saying oh probiotics is just rubbish or they make things worse but actually you know if you're just taking a, a cheap one or you're relying on you know Aptamel or other like Yakult that people often talk about they help a little bit but they really don't address imbalance in the gut mm-hmm. very well so taking a high dose strain and hitting it for a period of time whilst working on your gut health generally meaning that what you're taking actually goes in and sticks yeah. That's what I want people to sort of think about. You can't just pop a pill and, and expect it to do what it says because sometimes it they don't. And then a lot of people, they can take stuff and it doesn't show up. And so the body hasn't retained it. So okay. It's just one pillar. Right. Yeah. I'll let you talk a little bit about this, then this relationship with... So what we see on the GI mark test is not only do we look at the normal bacteria in terms of a few strains of them, it's not all of them obviously, but then we also have something called phyla, which is sets of bacteria. It's more a species rather than just one bacteria. These are being studied now in terms of if you have a certain amount of, and these are words that people may have heard of, so bacteroidetes and formicutes are mm. specific types of bacteria. They're being studied in terms of the way they absorb calories from food and the way you can liberate that nutrition and absorb it. Formicutes are thought to do that more. So there's a lot in terms of body weight and composition and how your gut bacteria influence that. So what this test has done is given you a guide as to what your ratios are. Actually, within yours, we are seeing that everything is a little bit on the low side here you've even got one of your normal healthy bacteria that is quite low it's interesting in your dietary regimen now having the kefir and taking the really heavy duty probiotics and actually that's what i see quite a lot in practice where you put in a lot of heavy dose strains and it brings things up quite a lot but then other things readjust and gut health is about the balance it really is about getting that fine art of Mm. having lots of everything and sometimes putting in a really heavy dose strong probiotic which has obviously brought up your lactobacillus meant that your bacteroides has dropped down a bit that's Mm. bacteroides fragilis which is one strain yeah all of this is about playing with it and trying to build that up to be as diverse as possible because each one of these normal bacteria we refer to them as the good army because they do good things for you they actually create short-chain fatty acids they support digestion they liberate calories from food they help you break down the fibers of food that you can't digest Mm -hmm. and that's why we want a really healthy gut biome because they're doing digestion for you and they're helping you out Mm -hmm. so we've got a few low things here creeping in 
But I guess you have to put it in the context of you and how you feel, how your gut feels, how your energy feels, how your weight is. Because, you know, I think, and Alberto will touch on this when we look at this later with mental health and actually the research, is that we know what a healthy microbiome is for one person in one environment is not what's healthy for another person in another environment. So if you took your African tribe and put that gut, gut microbiome into you in London, you would probably feel pretty awful it's almost like we need to be able to track people more frequently when they're feeling well when they're feeling sick when their energy is good to see what that microbiome or what the balance of the good and bad look like during those times now if you're obviously symptomatic with intermittent diarrhea constipation bloating after meals that kind of thing then there's obviously a problem we need to look at it so some of these bugs are more important than others in their ability to cause problems absolutely as that's what we found with you know for example all the yeast that you had before i think now we've got a few different things we've got what and this was up in the first instance wasn't it that you had citrobacter and now we've got Klebsiella coming up as high in the potential mm. autoimmune triggers and the citrobacter is fine isn't it yeah and again, as you know, I've done a few of these tests myself as well, and, and they do change. Certain things do pop up and some of them go down. It's just, you know, when should we start worrying about them? And we worry about them when the context is the gut health markers that you mm-hmm. then look at. So to say when we touched on microbium and context, so this little bug here, Prevotelicopri, which is known to trigger what they call autoimmune disease, which could be Hashimoto's, rheumatoid arthritis, joint inflammation, you know, all of those kind of inflammatory disorders. There's a known association. We can't have it. It's not cause and effect at the moment. Mm. But what we're seeing now in testing athletes is that for some reason, pretty much every athletic person I've tested, Prevotelicopri comes up high, including myself, including others. And so I was discussing this with Dr. Tommy Wood, who's a friend and a mentor that runs Nourish Balance Five, mm-hmm. medical director. And he said that he thinks it's somehow protective that because we're seeing it in such high prevalence in athletes and these athletes aren't sick, then we should not be treating it. We should accept it, that it is, it's there for a reason. It's doing something in an athletic population. So is it linked to the inflammation caused by athletic training? Possibly. As we know, what happens when you're athletic training is that you have a period of reduced blood flow to the gut because Mm. the blood flows in the muscles. That's made worse if you're in the heat, for example. Mm. It's also made worse if you're training hard, then that's a strain on your immune system Mm. and therefore indirectly your gut immunity. Plus, when you're an athlete, more so an endurance athlete, your demand for food is higher and therefore you have to eat more. Therefore, there's more taxing on your digestive system Mm. which means that you know over time that can cause problems so I remember once I went to the Mayo Clinic with a client and they said to me all this stuff about gut health and I'm like I need to eat I'm an athlete and I eat all these vegetables and I eat all that and they're like no just go back to buckwheat toast your your digestion is so taxed because you're eating like so many vegetables and so many like sweet potatoes and they're like you know just back off and eat right. more nutrient-dense, calorific foods, but less on the old veggies and stuff, and I felt... No, That's like, not advice you hear very often. It's not, but oh. the Germans aren't afraid to put this in their head. <laughs> Just coming back to this yes. context, how often should somebody go through a gut test? I think well, there's a few factors there. You know, one, how symptomatic are you yeah. at the first time of testing? 
and then how much do you prove on the regime and the two then there's the financial issue of you know spending three four hundred quid on a, a gut mm. test and report so if you know and you have to poop in a pot which isn't really nice and sort of shake it up and send it to the, via the post office mm. but if you're willing to do all that I think do a test at baseline do a treatment plan and then which test. is two to three months and then retest and see where you are and have some... was, if there are no symptoms doing one once a year as an MOT so I would normally recommend that. But if there is a treatment or there are gut issues cropping up or you're fine and you don't want to test, it's not like a set in stone thing, but as part of a good MOT for health, yeah. it should be involved. Because as you say, so you can be asymptomatic. Check yeah. and take it from there. You know, as we know, the research here is exploding. We're getting more and more information a lot of the time. But I think what we need to be doing is capturing a lot of these consumer test results in the context of the person. Mm. And then some tech company can actually just bring all that data and make the associations because at the moment they're all in a research environment and that's, you know, already cherry-picking a cohort. Mm. And so. just the context as well, I was looking yesterday at a test, an exact same test like this that was done a year ago. The amount of markers we have now compared mm. to this test a year ago is vastly different mm. and that's in this setting. So we're learning more all the time. So at the moment, every time you test, you will get much more data and usable data. So this is clinically usable data. Mm. So, for example, like we haven't talked about the intestinal health markers yet. We're just sticking on the bugs that we know that there's some overgrowth of some of these, which have been associated in some clinical trials with autoimmunity. And that all three of them. What are the three? They are. I'm going to allow you to do the pronunciation. So this one, Enterococcus fecium. Yeah. Which actually, you know, the range here, you're pretty much on the range, so I wouldn't be worrying about that. E4, E4. Yeah. You know, people automatically see high and then panic, but no. As Victoria rightly said, this is a quantitative analysis, so you look at where you actually sit on the range not just if you're high low but I mean this club's yellow the people go back and forth and you know that there was a case for treating it mm-hmm. but if you were to tell me you know it was symptomatic if you had a grumbly tummy if you had you know no. yeah mm-hmm. Because, I mean, Klebsiella can't, isn't potentially that nice in, over time in some people. But No, and it can contribute to several autoimmune diseases that is being proven. But at this level, in the context of everything you're saying, it wouldn't really worry me overly to launch in with a gut protocol. Because mm. no gut protocol comes without consequences, mm. um, natural or antibiotics. They all come with consequences because we're treating bacteria. Yeah. So you have to do these things under advisement. And the levels have to be higher and more alarming than this. Mm. Okay. Unless you look at these intestinal health markers, which we've then got here, and you're clearly having an immune reaction to what's in the gut. Yes, again, it's not extreme, but it's right at the top end. This is measured by something called secretory IgA, which is a marker of gut immunity and inflammation. So your Mm. body is having a reaction to what's in there, which is probably normal, given that there's things in there that we know potentially aren't that They aren't that nice, but yeah. is it that your body at that time is fighting it and it will just do its job and then it will come down? Yeah. You know, for example, just a snapshot in time. Yeah, it? again, we measured these things, these parasites, and the, they coexist, and people get scared by the name parasites because some parasites are potentially really nasty, watery diarrhea, weight loss, etc. But some of these actually just coexist, you know, fancy names like Pentotrichomonas hominis, that's a bit high in you. And so I think there's a few things here that we know. So look at secretory IgA, anti-gliadine IgA is a marker that's related to how your body is reacting to gluten, wheat, gluten and cross-reactive foods. And, you know, you're not celiac, but you are having a reaction to gluten and gluten-containing foods. Now, is that because there's inflammation in there? Probably. Mm. 
I always say to people, just because you're you're potentially gluten sensitive now, that's a result of inflammation and imbalance in the gut, which is probably a result of your history and where you've been and what you've done, you know, all the stuff you've talked about, exercise, drive, stress, addiction history. But, you know, there is inflammation in here. So mm-hmm. what I'm trying to say here is if you work on the gut, you prove the gut's resilience, then this inflammation and this reaction to gluten would go away. Right. I don't want you to go, I can never have gluten again, which a lot of people do once they've been told once. I mean, you don't avoid gluten now, no. religiously, do you? No, I don't avoid it at all, really. Mm. So the bigger issue, is the biggest issue on this report then, the IGA, is that the inflammation? Is that That's an indicator the that what's in there is not a good balance. It yeah. needs to be improved. Mm, okay. And also that your immune system at some level is fighting something in your gut. Mm. And that, in part... As Tam says, there will be now a food reaction created that can be around gluten and the cross-reactive foods, and that will be, again, fueling it. So it then becomes a catch-22 situation. So as soon as your immune system starts to get agitated about anything, it can then get agitated about a lot more things than it really needs to as a protective response. So when you're looking at a picture like this, you can't really isolate it and say that's the one core issue because it's a picture of your whole. So something about your immune system is not loving the map that's inside your gut at the mm. moment, bacterially, and partly to do with the gluten mm. intake. Okay. So calprotexin is a more formal medicalised marker which is associated with inflammatory bowel disease, like Crohn's colitis, ischemic colitis, that kind of thing. Now, do you have that? No, probably not, because you know it, the most extreme of that spectrum would be like blood in your stool and then you anemia and then you feel terrible this is quite uh, it's still at quite a low level but nonetheless it's a sign that there is inflammation ongoing mm. so with all that in mind i would do a gut protocol but i'd listen to you first and say how is your tummy i mean how do you react to foods do you have stable energy i mean when you use a continuous glucose monitor was that normal i haven't used that um, no. I haven't used that yet. Yeah, energy is pretty consistent and fairly stable. No real stomach issues, sometimes just a little bit of bloating. Yeah. But there's nothing that really stands out as, as being a symptom. One thing I do have, but I'm not sure it's connected or not, is a fairly persistent cough. Just a little <coughs> rabbit cough, you know. And I've had that for quite some time, whether that's linked to gut health or not, I don't know. I heard a cough is a symptom of candida, but... I've had this for ages. Everything is a Everything. symptom of candida. <laughs> the whole world encountered a man in, at one In this natural so. medicine field, like, honestly, <laughs> it's just... Yeah, that's the one thing I like to sort of disassociate myself right. yeah. with. Just saying, you know, candida causes everything. Yeah, I mean, how long's a piece of string? So, yeah. no, I... But I in reality, the immunocompromise that your gut is showing because of what is happening yeah. can lead to anything really which is why when you started you said like the gut is the foundation of health this Mm. is why we start here because even though you're not talking about specific gut symptoms in reality this is an underlying rumbling condition that may be just taking health away from other areas which Mm. is why in an extreme people can link every random symptom to a gut thing but in truth actually this is your immune system working all the time and it doesn't need to be it shouldn't really be so if we remove this piece as an underlying stressor piece then maybe your health in other areas might improve. Yeah. And that's the way we look at it. Yeah. I mean, it's tricky as well, but it's not one obvious symptom because you get used to how you feel and the amount of energy you have and it becomes your normal. It's quite difficult to isolate exactly how you're feeling and how much that, that's changed. Mm. That, um, that is the hardest thing. I'm yeah. just getting your other report up just because I wanted to see those. 
So for you, I mean, it's annoying, but going gluten-free for a month. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that's not too bad. Whilst um, doing some, some supportive treatments as well, you right. know, so supportive. So that you slip that in. Yeah, well, people... Depends just... how much you want to do. I mean, I used to be totally sceptical about this stuff, <laughs> but, you know, I had stuff, including Jardia, which... You know, I might have had for years, which mm. is a bit more pathogenic than mm. than what's here. And you know, I, these are two of my favourites that I've put Alberta on for various reasons. But <laughs> this, this is Gastromen, so it helps with the gut lining. Yeah. So um, this is a. Oh, and we can link to this stuff. I'll take pictures of it. Um, I mean, we personalise all our protocols. You wouldn't suggest someone just rushes out and buys that, would you? It's, uh, these are all medical grade supplements, so they're practitioner yeah. only. So I yeah. mean, I'm sure you can so buy we it for Amazon, them, but. This um, I, uh, but I think you have to be careful with this stuff because they do generally have effects. I mean, if you take five yeah. drops of this, for some people you're on the loot all day and you'll have a <laughs> detox reaction and your, blood, your skin will yeah. blow up. So yeah. you have to start slowly. I mean, yeah. these things really do have an effect. Plus there's licorice in that, which yeah. helps the gut lining and that can overstimulate some people. So, mm. you know, just getting sort of baseline on people. And again, you need to know what you're treating. I mean, what are you treating? Are you treating this can treat what they call dysbiosis so an imbalance of the good and bad in the gut but it, it generally kills off you know some of the good as well mm. so you need to use it alongside a probiotic and, and sort of space the taking of it mm. so i think at this point in time we are at the stage where unfortunately you do have to work with someone you know you yeah. don't have to come to me and the sort of the expense here but you do have to get someone that knows what they're doing and mm. we can do you know obviously we can publish your report if you want we've got a full gut testing report here which you're welcome to link to and people can understand you know not just the numbers but they can understand the context how this makes you feel yeah so if someone does the gut test through you they would get that a 10 page report afterwards pretty much with a a supplement plan or a supplement schedule that's a treatment protocol and you know sometimes we do need to add in prescription medications as I've said which does require a doctor oversight but Victoria is a gut health expert and and has worked a lot in this so you don't need to you know see me and, and pay the consult fee for a lot of this it's like test plan you know and there's a lot of explanations some of it's templated some of it's not you know there's your personal information in there but it generally makes a difference to how you feel and function. Okay, cool. So um, what are the recommendations for me then? If I was going to embrace the whole thing and go gluten-free and then the... So when we talk things. about gut supplements, you're talking in two camps. You're talking supportive and you're talking treatment. And sometimes they cross over. Like one of those supplements there does a bit of both. A bit of treatment, a bit of support. But you have to actually make sure you're supporting the gut lining and the gut health environment and also treat at the same time. So I think Tam and I both prefer gentle treatments when we're dealing with not this pathogenic stuff. But in order to support the gut lining, we use very natural supplements, actually. And one of them, you were talking before about putting lots of lactobacillus into your gut and things like that. And that seems to have brought the candida down. Well, what we're learning more and more about probiotic supplementation is that it's not only to seed the gut, but it can shift the microbial balance. Mm. And we see that actually with using something called Saccharomyces boulardii. It's a yeast, actually. But what it can do is really support the gastrointestinal lining and the reshaping of the gut microbiome. So I tend to put that in many protocols, but particularly for somebody like you with a raised secretory IgA level, it really has a nice interaction to try and calm this immune reactivity down Mm. simultaneously to treatment 
And, you know, part of the treatment is removing some of the inflammatory things like gluten. That, that's treatment as well. That's, that's actually part of the treatment protocol. Mm-hmm. But then we add in other supportive supplements that are known to assist with gut lining. So that can be fat-soluble vitamins. Vitamin D, vitamin A is also very good for gut lining. But again, under advisement because vitamin A has other consequences. So this is where you really need a practitioner to know your case history and to know where you're at to recommend these specific things. Mm. And then it's about using the herbal complexes that actually get on top of the bacteria that have overgrown. As Tam said, these aren't specific. These are herbal complexes which will kill a lot of bugs, but the idea is they take down the nasty ones that are overgrowing more. So we use something called biocidin liquid, which I'm sure you'll link to, along with, particularly because you have this pentatrichomonas hominis, which is one of the protozoa, also known as a parasite, but I've seen this more in its role in biofilm creation. And biofilms are really interesting because this is why gut issues remain. They stay around because biofilms can cover over the bacteria and basically protect them from your own immune system or from other bacterial shifting. Mm -hmm. So that's what keeps things under wraps. So what we use is things called biofilm disruptors. There's various out there on the market and they actually help to dissolve the biofilm on top of the bacteria so that the herbal agents can get in underneath and I like the way the biobotanicals research company have formulated their biocidin because they've done a lot of testing on what these bacteria are vulnerable to they're all herbal and they're natural and it can get on top of this sort of condition very easily mm. I don't have a copy of your other geomap because I don't know if you did it with us or no it was done with another yeah yeah it was done a while ago I was okay. just looking for it there, but yeah, not, not to worry about that. Okay, so the so, recommendations. So the, the recommendations for you, you know, as you're saying, you do there's a treatment phase and then there's a maintenance phase. So a four to six week support protocol with a specific vitamin D complex. We use a balance with K because it keeps mm-hmm. calcium metabolism in check and it also you know improves your immunity. Despite you probably having good vitamin D levels, given that you come back actually, the last test I had was about six weeks ago, and it was right at the bottom end of normal. Mm. Wow! I know. I was really surprised. You maybe have quite a lot. Maybe you have the VDR test. You had your genetics tested for whether you yes raised requirement for Mm, D yeah. And if you live here, even in the summer we've had, yeah. all of my clients need D. It's, it's really quite extraordinary. I'm mm. sorry, if I'm at the low end of normal, what is your average canary walk off as well? Particularly with gut stuff as well. So Looking vitamins high. get used up. I think we forget this. We use up our vitamins because that's what they're there for, to do biochemical reactions, to make neurotransmitters, to protect our guts, to live. So if you have a higher than average need and you've got an underlying health situation happening, mm. that need keeps going up all the time, which is why supplements... Clues in the name. They supplement to support your general health. What supplement do you recommend for vitamin D? So as Tom was saying, this D-complex, because the thing with fat-soluble vitamins is they need to be in balance. So vitamin D has to be balanced with vitamin K because of the way the body metabolises both of them. Mm. So we tend to use a... I mean, yeah, I mean, we... We use a range of supplements, like, you know, part of what we do, Fibre, we, we look at all the supplements that are available and then curate the best. But, mm-hmm. you know, these are practitioner-only supplements. And I used to look at them and go, oh, my God, they're so expensive. I'm not paying that. I'm just going to use, you know, the Holland and Barrett or Amazon version. And they just don't do the same. Yeah, it's, it's false economy, isn't it? It is false economy. And I went through it and I looked and I read the research and I looked at the ingredients. And I'm like, whoa, there's some proper doses of stuff in here mm-hmm. compared to, like, what you normally get on the high street. It's like, oh, but there's it's got every vitamin under the sun, but the dose is completely relevant you know it's not you see the clinical trials and it's like right they're using 10,000 units of vitamin d and your vitamin d from holland about it's like 400 Mm -hmm. 
And, and the it, other thing you have to be careful about with non-practitioner grade supplements is the other stuff that creeps in there, called mm. excipients, but stuff that they bind bulk and fill with, they bulk stuff out. So yeah. you might have a little bit of the product, but what else are you getting? And if you're dealing with anybody with any underlying immune issue or reactivity or gut stuff, you don't need to be shoving a load of caking agents and fillers and yeah. bulkers yeah. into your body. No, it's just not necessary. Not. Do you make this on your website? We don't. We make the recommendations within our protocol. So we, we store yeah. the, the the supplements are like on listed on the website. So if you know, you okay. know, given this is going to be published, and we know that this is as a template gut support and inflammation. Mm. You know, this is standard, right? So you've got sure. the vitamin D, you've got the medical grade probiotic, you've got a type of beneficial yeast, which I do and don't use in people sometimes, depending mm-hmm. on how you feel on it, and then you've got something to heal the gut lining. We either use this or we use something called Enterovite. And then we use digestive enzyme support. Mm -hmm. Now, for some people who are really sensitive to digestive enzymes, because they basically improve the environment in the gut so that things don't overgrow. So they ironically increase the acidity, but in a way that allows your food to be digested more. Because Mm -hmm. there's a common misnomer that excess acidity in the gut causes reflux and causes problems with digestion. Actually, it's impaired production of acid that often can make things worse yeah i've actually forgotten the worst symptom i have and if antonio was here my partner she would not we would not have forgotten this is belching after food Mm, and really quite badly so that i've completely forgotten about that because for me it's become normal sure i know it's not particularly you know in restaurants but actually i do control stuff in restaurants but that is one of the the biggest digestive symptoms that i've got and that is fermentation from mm, yeah. usually caused by the bugs that are in there. Yeah. You know, they so they definitely are. And that's what worse again. It got better and then it got worse. Mm. So I often say to people, look, if you don't want to take digestive enzymes, there's a few options. One, you can take a sort of more broad spectrum that contains things that reduce, that break up the fats, the proteins, and those and sort of support pancreatic function as well in terms of a digestive process or you can take a shot of apple cider vinegar Mm. bitters lemons you know even raw onions if you tolerate them can stimulate the gastric juices Mm -hmm. so it's kind of like a two-pronged approach you either take a digestive enzyme which some people can overreact to because it will give you a little bit of nothing why you wouldn't want to do that you just take i mean it's a cost point as well you know if you don't want to take another pill yeah but taking, you know, that really helped me, like literally just putting cider vinegar or having balsamic vinegar a lot on, on things. Doesn't that, the apple cider vinegar, have a positive effect on glycemic variability as well, doesn't it? It helps to bring down blood sugars. It can do. Indirectly. It's touted as that. I think when apple cider vinegar is one of those things that's been played to heal everything under the sun mm. and it can do a lot but again it's all individual variables so which is what makes it so exciting like now we'll we can biohack you know even without seeing a doctor you know that the glucose monitors that we're using i've mm. used one the dexacom is the g6 is much better than the freestyle libra the new one. Oh, is it i nearly went for the libra but didn't no don't they, no, fall, don't. they fall off actually <laughs> having, having used them the sugars run quite a lot higher so i did the dexacom g6 here and you don't have to have another device, you don't have to scan it, it sort of speaks to your phone via Bluetooth and stores. Right. So what I learned from that is that, surprisingly, the correlation with that and stress hormones. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you wake up fasted, and yet my glucose is like six, mm-hmm. and that's correlated with cortisol, so your cortisol awakening response, stress mm-hmm. hormone. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I remember listening to Peter Atir and he said, what can we do to work on morning morning glucose, work yeah. on overnight cortisol production? So that's improving deep sleep. So explain that to me again, because that's very relevant for at least someone I know. So in order to get your morning cortisol level elevated, so someone who is 
Is that what so you're no, the cortisol should be, should be high. in high in yes. the morning, but it shouldn't be too high. So it's yes. that kind of natural rhythm. There is something called the cortisol awakening response, yeah. which you can measure, you know, on a saliva test, the Dutch test, this thing that we use. It so the cortisol is usually measured in with saliva. So we don't want too much, but higher cortisol in the morning is associated with high morning fasted glucose levels. Okay. Okay, because it stimulates gluconeogenesis, so the yeah. mobilization of glucose from other stores yeah. in order to kind of get you ready for the day, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, if you're waking up and your blood glucose is like, you know, six and a half, seven, eight and up, then that's a sign that you would have been producing too much cortisol overnight, mm. just sort of like an overnight okay. stress reaction. Yeah. And yeah, I remember Peter Atia writing about that and I'm thinking oh yeah that's totally it so what's the best way to work on reducing morning glucose uh, levels is to work on overnight cortisol production Mm -hmm. and that's the lead in to the evening right that's Mm -hmm. not staying up all the things that we do on the computer store one you know even if we've got effed off lux you know all of those things the blue light blocking yeah still sometimes we're not getting that deep lowered cortisol at night you should be sitting in front of a laptop you know, watching a problem crash in or a share price drop or whatever it is, you might wear your blue light blockers. You're still being exposed <laughs> yeah. to a stressful Even situation. stressful TV programs, though. Even if you're watching yeah. like three new blue blockers, like we the Bodyguard or whatever people have been yeah. watching recently, it's like it's actually quite stressful. So and I've had to have words with thing. people. I, I, people say, as I watch the news at ten and I go to bed. So if I was to say, okay, Victoria, I'm going to come round about five to ten tonight. I'm going to knock on the door and I've had a really shitty day. Yeah, all about it. All about it. Yeah. And then I'm going to find the three worst things that have gone on in the world and tell you about yes. them. And I've gone about half past. Is that cool? Yeah. You'd be like, no, not really. Yeah, exactly. Good point. And it's all the news at the moment. The news, the news at ten. It's like, why is the news at ten o'clock? Because I go to bed slightly depressed so you about the news. <laughs> riddled with fear, propaganda, yes. and shame. Yes. It's, uh, yeah, it's which is not good for your deep sleep, which again then sends your morning cortisol, cortisol high. And all of that cortisol regulation really doesn't help the gut. So the mm. immune cortisol, that stress response, stress mm. is one of the biggest things that affects gut health. Mm. It's a bi-directional relationship. So yeah. stress guts create stress people and vice versa. Yeah. So a lot of the people actually we see in that context with low secretory IgA, mm. and that's basically a sign of sort of chronic stress and chronic like depletion. A lot of athletes have low secretory IgA or people with chronic fatigue syndrome. Mm-hmm. And that basically means your body's just not mounting any response to anything and just means you feel pretty. Yeah. You know, things can overgrow quite easily. So you are mounting a response because you've got a healthy immune system and it's reacting, it's doing what it needs to, but we don't want it to keep doing that. Yeah. Okay. I mean, how much does a gut test help to take away a lot of the guesswork around someone's health? Because it seems to me that it reveals a great deal more than we could get from any other mechanism, from any other test. Combined, of course, with a good old-fashioned conversation about how someone's feeling, what's going on for them, and then you know, all the context wrapped around it. I think it reveals a lot. But again, I think what we know is, having run a lot of these tests on people, that they do change. So Mm. what is the frequency with which Mm. they change? Mm. So if you have this gut test and it shows you've got these markers that are pretty raised and you tell me you feel okay, but you've still got some symptoms. So for you, it's all about optimizing it. It's getting you not burgeoning after food. It's getting your energy levels even more improved. It's, Mm. you know, reducing any sugar cravings. And if you did this protocol for six weeks and then stopped and then oh actually those don't exist anymore then that's a good result Mm. so I think there's two things that if these become more affordable which they will over time you know consumer health whereby 
you can go out and buy tests in the UK is improving. Mm. The amount of information that comes out of that consumer health testing is improving, so you don't have to give the ownership to a practitioner to tell you what to do, which means the cost of these tests will come down, which means we can do them with more frequency, which means we can associate them with your symptoms more, which means that we have stronger correlations for you, and then we can see what works. So at the moment, you know, a lot of this is expertise-based, but give it five years and you will be, you know, doing a gut test probably three or four times a year and a lot of people and it will be your toilet sampling it and sending it off to the lab mm. really, you know I think we're going to mm. get there yeah but in the context of any health problem if you do have a health problem if you do have gut symptoms that aren't resolving it isn't worth guessing it is definitely worth testing yeah. so that you have information sure. with which to go forward yeah and the reason we say that is because you do need, ironically, antibiotics or antifungals for some time if you've got some very nasty bugs in there. Mm. H. pylori being one, it could be gurgling away for years and you could end up like an ulcer with an ulcer. I mean, some people have you know, perforated ulcers and it's mm. the first presentation. And then you're in hospital, then you're needing an operation. So, you know, this is all the whole preventative medicine model is like, you know, look at things, look how you feel alongside the test and then do not get sick. Uh, I mean, none of us want to go into hospital because you end up feeling worse. But so, I mean... And we should probably just mention the bits that we haven't mentioned about your health because this does give us a full digestive health picture. So if you didn't have enough digestive enzymes or you weren't breaking fats down properly or there was any occult blood in your stool or worms or things that you don't have, this would pick it up as well. So it's a very good screening tool for gastrointestinal health in general and for making sure that we catch these things. So if your calprotectin was, you know, a little bit higher and you said that you'd had weight loss, for example, or even notice a little bit of blood in your store, I'd be straight, you know, NHS GP Mm -hmm. or gastroenterologist and Mm -hmm. you'd have an endoscopy. Endoscopy. Yeah. So with that in mind, it is a very good screening tool. And usually we run these alongside a blood test, which would look at, you know, hemoglobin, B12, other factors. So you put the context together and you get the best path forward. I think it it makes a lot of sense. I mean, if you're having symptoms in any of what we talk about as the six signals, so sleep, mental health, energy, body composition, digestion, fitness, it links so closely correlates to all of those things, doesn't it? Mm. You know, you can look for clues if you're not sleeping well or clues if your mental health is poor, which we were going to talk with you about, actually. I'm not sure what your angle was, but certainly I'd love to explore the link between the gut and mental health because it's fairly well proven now, is it not, that... Well, even with the gut health and inflammation and depression, I think there's quite a strong series of links. But I'm now about to, what are your thoughts? Yeah, definitely. So it's an extremely promising field. We know that systemic inflammation, which is inflammation in the body and in the brain potentially, is linked with potentially all mental conditions, but the evidence is more for depression at the moment. So there's this book, The Inflamed Mind, by Edward Bulmore. So essentially... What we know is that there's a massive link, but we don't know yet how to treat it. So any protocol that improves potentially good health, directly or indirectly, could improve mental health. We don't know yet how to do it in a bespoke fashion, but I hope in the future we will. But conceivably, anything that improves gut health could improve mental health. Now, there's the so-called gut-brain axis, which now people term as a gut microbiota brain axis, mm-hmm. in that the microbiome or the microbiota play a significant role in how gut health actually influences mental health. Again, we don't know why, for example, the studies of people with OCD, and we know that they have a different bacterial population as compared to people without OCD, and there's studies in almost, you know, quite a few mental conditions. 
cause, consequence, how to treat them. There's still a lot of research to do out there, but anything that potentially could address dysbiosis, gut lining, reduce inflammation, systemic, improve digestion, could conceivably have a positive effect on mental health. Mm. So by all means, the recommendation is look at your gut health, look at your microbiome. The more you can do to eat healthily, you're probably investing in good mental health. And if you have any mental health problems, chances are it could potentially could potentially help. Be linked to the gut. And I think what we know even from mouth studies and people say, oh, they're not relevant to us, but, you know, they've done what they call fecal microbial transplants in, in mice and put in, you know, a different type of bacteria, good healthy bacteria. So they've made anxious rats into happy rats just by changing what's in the gut. So mice, rats, sorry, I shouldn't use them interchangeably, mice. So we do know that it definitely has an impact. And, you know, I've experienced this time and time again with people that if you improve their you know what their gut tests look like they do predominantly depression and anxiety yes and, and OCD as, as well but I think it's a very evolving science there's not many people doing that you know there's clinics popping up there's one near here in Harley Street the Dove Clinic which does fecal microbial transplant there's the Taymount Centre in Surrey which is people coming from all over the world to try and manipulate their microbiome in a very strong manner you know essentially they're clearing you out they do a series of colonics and then they do you know like a turkey basting of a very healthy amount of poop and then they give you things to help it stick mm. around now and at home treatments after that they continue so and it seems mm. to have positive effects so i mean you should probably link there's a girl called leslie patterson who's a famous uh, scottish triathlete who has had a series of fmt and she had lyme she had chronic fatigue she had all sorts of things yeah. and she you know took her away from being a pro triathlete for a while and then this basically revolutionized her life so i think the takeaway for that is i wish that you know more mainstream mental health was looking at gut health and mental health but they're not and i think the problem with that is because you know, the research is, is quite bitty at the moment. And as I better say, if you have symptoms of, you know, obsessive compulsive disorder, you might not even have a diagnosis, but you might be that kind of person that has to be rigid and has, you know, intrusive thoughts, has to check things constantly. So I think, you know, improving your gut health and what does that look like? It means taking out inflammatory foods, you know, different types of gluten, for example. It means adding in, you know, a range of products that are healthy to the gut. Curcumin, turmeric, you know, some fermented foods people can tolerate, you know, taking out refined sugars, taking out artificial sweeteners. I mean, when I used to work in the Maudsley OCD centre, I mean, the kids, the things that they eat, I mean, it was in, yeah. it's impossible. It's awful. You don't know how anybody can be mentally healthy when you see what yeah. the diet they're being asked to be vibrant and mm. functioning on. Yeah, and I think one key point from what Alberto says is that we know that the bugs in the gut actually speak via the gut-brain axis, they actually speak to the brain. And the vagus nerve as well. Yeah, yeah via the nerves. So, you know, that what's in there, as you were saying about the candida, mm. you know, making you crave things. I mean, it literally, there's sort of a signaling process going on. But these little things in the gut are waving via various neural mechanisms and then changing out how you feel and function. And production of neurotransmitters as well. Exactly. Like they manufacture massive amounts of serotonin more than the brain so we still don't know how that plays out the potential is that 
actually what happens in the gut may actually be playing a significant role of what happens in the brain. I don't claim that this is the case for everyone, but it could be so for a significant proportion of people. And just looking at it rationally, if, if your gut is overactive and there's fermentation and there's stuff going on down there and it's sending up basically panic signals yeah. through the nerve system all the time to the brain, your brain doesn't know that you're not under threat from the outside. It doesn't really know that it's an internal thing and it can fuel anxiety, you know, just this over, overwhelming panic and OCD type. Situation. Yeah, it's really fascinating. So, Avanti, do you do a gut test with all of your patients or clients when you turn? I don't personally do the gut test myself. So, if they have any digestive symptoms or if they're interested in going deeper into the lifestyle medicine, which I tend to recommend that they do, then I will refer them to some professionals because ideally I think everyone should do whatever they're most qualified to do. If I started getting into gut health, you know, I don't think I have the capacity to be a good psychiatrist and be up to date with all the science in gut health. We work very closely together, which is nice, and I'm starting to work here at 55 Harley Street so that we can share information because I think teamwork is so, so important. And I think if you, yeah, you need to bounce ideas, especially in an involving science, but I don't think you can manage all of it because it's difficult, yeah. especially with people with strong mental health problems. But um, I came at this originally from looking at the work of Kelly Brogan. I don't know if you've come across her, yeah. and yeah. she's gone completely. <laughs> I don't really know what the right word. A very hippy dippy spiritual, and it's kind of put a lot of people off. And some of her earlier principles were good, but you know, I think she's a bit out of touch with how we are in the psychiatric system here. She came to speak in London and was like, yes, I don't do any medications with my patients and I put them all on gluten-free, dairy-free, fat-free, this, not fat, heavy fat, sorry, Mm. everything free but fat. And, and, you know, really getting people to do that is very difficult, especially when they're mentally unwell. So it almost like, you know, an inpatient environment, if you really want to get someone better, Mm. is, you know, that intensivist approach is really necessary. And because it's really hard as a practitioner when you have someone that's got clearly got a ton of lifestyle stuff and they've got psychiatric condition where that could be depression, anxiety, addiction, Mm. and you're trying to treat all that with some medication to get them better but they're still going into that lifestyle and still having to see have the triggers in on a day-to-day basis Mm. family environment food all of it and sometimes we have to say like you know a treat intensive environment a clinic is what you need and at the moment unfortunately it's hugely expensive Mm. we're talking about this all the time of trying to figure out what what the best way is for people but this intensive approach is the way forward for people. Well, I think the, the person, for the average person listening, the personalised approach is something I've definitely, and probably they're already semi-bought into that listening mm. to my podcast. But mm. And the gut testing, I think, is fascinating. These results are really interesting. I want to thank you all for your time that you spent going through and preparing and, and doing this podcast. Let's just quickly go around. If anyone's interested in finding out more about the work you do, how can they best get hold of you all? So I work with Tam and we're now working very closely together. So we're at the moment at Fibre Health and yeah, the best place is to go to Fibre Health and we're both available through there. Yeah, yeah. so the Fibre's changing up. It may even change its name, but we're sticking with that for now. So Victoria's yeah. operationalising our COO and also working in gut health. And we work with the functional models, so the testing and then the planning and the support, which mm-hmm. is health coaching and nutrition. Mm-hmm. And then... So Fiber Health and I'm at Sporty Doc, which also is changing this year. Sporty IE. Sporty IE Doc. Um, <laughs> on Twitter, I post lots of interesting content or 
I th- at least the old I cheeky podium finish on absolutely so that's my cross addiction <laughs> into sport which is not doing my gut health any good especially in the, no, in the heat no subject of a whole other podcast it is <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, Alberto is my website yeah. is psychiatristlondon.co.uk psychiatristlondon.co.uk which yeah. might be the best psychiatry website ever yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was lucky enough to get the domain actually yes. yeah. forward thinking alright great Brilliant. Thank, Thank you all you. very much. Uh, Thank you for listening. Interested in finding out what your health IQ is? Jump on our website, bodyshopperformance.com, and click on Take the Test. And it'll take you through to a very short two to three minute health IQ test. At the end of that, you'll get a scorecard based on your results and a free 39 page report built all around our six signals, which are sleep, mental health, energy, body composition, digestion, and fitness. So jump on the website, bodyshopperformance.com, and take our test. Finally, thanks for listening to this show. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard and it's added value to you, share the episode with someone you think could benefit from it. And don't forget to leave a rating, a review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening.